Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All views expressed in this podcast are mine and those of our guests. Providence College Professor of Political Science Susan McCarthy is joining me today to help us understand how the Chinese government responded to the, to the discovery of the presence of a new virus, one we now know well as COVID-19, and what impact the coronavirus has had on Chinese politics and society, China's relationships around the world, and particular its relationships with the United States. As listeners may know from a previous episode of this podcast, Dr. McCarthy has many years' experience studying and writing about Chinese politics. She also has lived for several years in China, doing research on various aspects of Chinese politics, particularly its policies towards religious minorities, and she knows well Chinese society and culture. I am sure that you will find her insights about the current events in China surrounding the pandemic insightful, and they will take you well beyond what you can learn from your newsfeed. Professor Susan McCarthy, welcome once again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you very much. And thanks so much uh, in this time uh, when I know you're dealing with grading final exams and remote learning and all the things that go with uh, uh, college professors coping with this pandemic. Uh, Thanks for taking time uh, to join us. So to start us off, Susan, could you remind us a little bit about the origins of the disease in Wuhan, China, uh, exactly how we came to know that this was going on in China and what the initial response of the Chinese authorities were uh, to the the epidemic. Uh, sure. So um, uh, as anybody who is following American politics would probably know, the origins of coronavirus are themselves, of COVID-19 are themselves a matter of some dispute. But what we do know for sure is that uh, an illness, a, a, a serious, highly infectious uh, pneumonia um, first emerged in, uh, I believe, December in, in Wuhan, China. Uh, although I've seen some reports saying it emerged in November, but I'm not sure if that's actually correct. But anyway, um, what we know is that a group of medical professionals began talking about this uh, in private, closed uh, on uh, groups on social media that were generally only you know sent to other medical professionals, but some of their um, conversations got screenshotted and shared with a wider environment, uh, and so news about some sort of a pneumonia, SARS-like pneumonia, started trickling out. Um, uh, but basically, uh, and this goes to the Chinese government's response. The Chinese government's response in the first few weeks was mainly to shut down talk of this. They were trying to um, basically quash any discussion of a potential SARS-like illness. And just to backtrack, SARS is uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, which was a basically the first COVID disease. That was uh, SARS COVID number one. Uh, COVID-19 is SARS COVID number two. Um, But basically, that was an that was a very serious illness, highly infectious, and apparently even more uh, lethal. Uh, that emerged in I believe it was two thousand two, two thousand three, and and did not become a global pandemic. Although it did some SARS illnesses did spread to like Canada and the United States and places, 
But anyway, back to Wuhan, uh, the initial response of, of officials was to to bring the people who were discussing this illness, uh, who were all mostly doctors and hospital uh, workers, in for uh, questioning and to reprimand them and to basically tell them to knock it off. And in some cases, to they detain them and then force them to basically retract things that they said. Why would the um, Chinese do that? I, at this stage? Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, so one, okay, th- there's a question that I'm a little unclear about, and that is to what extent was this led by Wuhan level officials, or was this orchestrated by the central government? So certainly city officials would have an interest in trying to main, sort of manage threats to stability, to social order close to home, to sort of keep it under wraps to prevent their superiors from hearing about something. So Wuhan officials, if they were the ones who were leading this, they may simply have felt, well, we can manage this ourselves. Let's just quash any talk about so this. They, so they would that have been concerned down. about getting in trouble with the, the central government authorities. Exactly. So, I mean, clearly they didn't realize how serious this was and had no inkling that it was going to spread the way it did. So, um, I mean, the first sort of groups of officials to to haul those people in for questioning were actually uh, people in the public health bureaucracy and the hospital itself, hospital administrators, uh, who brought those doctors who were part of those conversations in for questioning. And it was only later that the public security was directly involved. I should say, though, that the... There is evidence that the people at the higher up levels of the central government knew about this because there was a report on China's central television, the main broadcasting uh, outlet out of Beijing, as early as uh, January 30th. But that uh, that uh, CCTV um, broadcast basically said that uh, eight individuals in Wuhan were being investigated for rumor mongering which uh, rumor mongering, you know, leading to dis- public disorder or threatening stability. So, 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 focus, uh, and it mentioned so the focus that, this time is, is clearly uh, about, uh, about this, this news getting out, not on controlling yes. the disease itself, but, but a concern that uh, somehow uh, information about this will be harmful. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so again, so yeah, the initial, the initial, uh, approach was simply to quash all talk of this. Um, Then, you know, so cases were still developing, but there were not really that many cases um, yet. So again, it was not apparent as to how serious this was. Uh, Then in the middle of January, actually, the the city officials in Wuhan went ahead with planned political meetings um, of like the Communist Party and the local government. And they also held this big sort of you know, public potluck for something like 40,000 people in this big public event. Um, So, you know, again, an indication that they had no inkling as to how serious this was. Um, So it wasn't until January 20th um, that it really became apparent to, uh, that that you got the first sort of uh, national uh, level indication that this was serious. And, And that was at a press conference held by China's number one epidemiologist who'd been sent down to Wuhan to check things out. So, so the central government clearly was starting to pay attention uh, by early January. But again, their initial response was to quash things. So it wasn't until like the uh, January 20th and then January 23rd, which is the date that the Chinese government issued the lockdown 
uh, that that Wuhan, the city environs, and all the people living there were were basically prevented from even leaving. Something like thirty five million people were locked down. So that that was really when uh, the government kicked into high gear. And right now in the United States, there's a lot of controversy about the origins of the of the of the virus. Uh, initially, reports were that it was it, it emerged in a in a food market uh, in Wuhan. Uh, but the Trump administration now is talking about, oh, maybe there was a release from a laboratory in Wuhan. Uh, what, what did what did we know in, in January about all this? And, and what do you think we've learned about all that uh, up until now? Well, you know, uh, I, I should note I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist, Um I think that, first of all, the, yeah, the uh, Trump administration, most recently Secretary Pompeo, but also Trump himself, are definitely trying to divert attention from their own, you know, very serious missteps by blaming China and even talking up this conspiracy theory that the, that the virus somehow originated in a lab, that it was somehow human created. Um, from what I understand, you know, scientists have looked at this and said there's no way that this was created in a lab and deliberately released, which is one of the, or just even created in a lab. Now, that said, it's certainly possible, I think within the realm of possibility, that the virus did accidentally come from a lab, meaning it may have been uh, in an animal in a lab uh, and then got released and then somehow found its way to the, the, the live animal market in Wuhan. So that's a possibility. So I don't want to say that that's completely outside the realm of possibility. But I from everything I've read, some of the earliest uh, victims of coronavirus were people who worked at or relative or regularly frequented that market. So I assume that that is still true. Uh, um, and again, you know, who knows? But <laughs> I I understand that that is the case. So so I do not uh, accept these conspiracy theories that this was somehow deliberately engineered or deliberately released. But it is possible um, that. A, a SARS-type coronavirus could have been accidentally released, maybe infecting a worker who then somehow infected others or even, you know, got into animals at the, the Hawaiian yeah, market. It seems to me what you've just said about how the early infections were from that market would certainly suggest that the market was the origin of the, of the disease. Yes. And, yeah. I, and I why, believe why else so. would they yeah. be the first ones to get infected? And uh, yes. uh, otherwise yeah. you'd have to, come up with a kind of convoluted scenario that it's in a lab and it just happens to end up in a market where there are animals that might've been the origin <laughs> itself. So, yes. so yeah. it, it really is kind of convoluted. Uh, about those live animal markets, somebody who's uh, lived in China for quite a bit of time, uh, were you ever familiar with uh, live animal markets in China and, and the Chinese uh, uh palate liking uh, these exotic animals? Is, is that something you've ever encountered? Um, well, first of all, not all of those animals are for sale for food. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the pangolins, they're sold for their hides. Um, the pangolin is this long nose, looks it, kind of like an anteater. It's, yeah, it's almost like an anteater right. type um, with, uh, you know, these scales, hard scales. I have actually seen pangolin hides before for sale. Um, so... To be honest, I mean, you know, there are I, there are a lot of like what are called bird and flower markets where people sell caged birds and plants and things like that. Um, 
it, different parts of China have different types of food markets. You tend to get the sort of more exotic uh, food items down in the south, uh, southeast. And Wuhan's um, more Wuhan in the north, not, right? Wuhan's in the, the center. center. Okay. It's really a smack in the center. So I'm actually not terribly familiar with with that kind of you know uh, aspect of Chinese life. I've been to loads of night markets. So I mean, in, like in Taiwan, you can. There's a whole street full of, you know, where they sell snakes and you can have snake soup and snake blood and things like that. So, uh, you know, they certainly do have a much more varied palate than Americans tend to. Um, Have you ever ever been to Wuhan itself? I have not, actually. I have not. So, yeah. Wuhan is sort of a mid-sized city, right? It's... Uh, yes, it's a good, it's a good size city. It's, it's one of the three furnaces of China, as it's called it. It's extremely hot in the summer, hot and humid. That's what it's sort of most, one of the things it's most famous for. It's also the site where, um, I believe it's Wuhan. Well, uh, where you had pitched battles during the cultural revolution and it's right on the Yangtze river. And, um, so, so it's a famous industrial site, but it, Wuhan proper has about 11 million people in it. So it's a really big city. So this order on January 23rd to lock down the city is a major endeavor, right? I mean, yes, I mean the order so I should say that Chinese cities also often include sort of exterior districts which themselves may be more like farmland or or sub, even kind of suburban or smaller towns, smaller industrial towns. So the lockdown I believe applied to about um like Wuhan and about a dozen surrounding cities. And I think the total population under lockdown was something like 35 million people, which is wow. huge. So. And, and that ended up being rather effective. That is, people did not leave that region, right? They- yes. Yeah, it was very, I mean, some people tried to sneak out and get around. Um, you know, one thing, yeah, so, so it was very effective, although there are also sorts of questions about the accuracy of China's uh, statistics when it comes to the number of deaths as well as the number of cases. But it does seem like the Chinese government was pretty effective at, at bringing the at sort of bringing the virus to heel and really uh, pretty much coming close to shutting down transmission or ending transmission. So. And what about other Chinese cities? Uh, to what extent were they uh, affected by the virus? Beijing, Shanghai, the other cities in China? You know, I don't have any numbers offhand. I know there was this, a case in the city of Tianjin, which is very near Beijing, where uh, a whole bunch of people were infected and they it was traced to a, um, a shopping mall. So uh, you also had some transmission in Shanghai, but not a great deal. Um, you know, people sprang into action pretty quickly and immediately started social distancing and uh, taking a, you know, sort of taking on behaviors and actions to really protect themselves and their families, um, which a lot of that has to do with their, their experience of SARS and knowing firsthand how, how lethal something like this can be. And the government so, as well was, had, had, had experience with SARS and so yes. had some sense of how to respond quickly. Yeah. So, so in the end, the infection in China was pretty much concentrated in Wuhan and then maybe some of the other cities. But we're now hearing that things are much better there. Yes, they are. Um, I, I mean, again, I'm really curious to know about the situation in Chinese prisons in uh, some of these detention facilities. I don't know. 
because the virus did numbers of, of sick people did go as far as some of these other towns and cities, but somehow they have managed to really contain its spread uh, as far as we know. But in the meantime, the Chinese economy has really been hard hit uh, by this. Can you say yes. something about the economic effects? And um, The economic effects, uh, I think I saw something, a figure like something like five, five million people or so, five million jobs have been lost due to this. So, so in comparison to the United States, the economic uh, effects have so far not been nearly as severe. Um, I don't know if that's including, you know, what happened in Wuhan, because clearly there were tremendous losses there, simply by having to shut down the economy. Um, I think China is, in some respects, you know, more on track to have the so-called V-shaped recovery. Uh, The only problem for China is that their economy is affected by what's going on in the rest of the world, because they export so much. So I think, in some ways, the the negative fall, economic fallout from coronavirus is in China is going to be more affected by what's happening globally by the spread of coronavirus globally than just by what happens specifically within mainland China. So so the economic fallout is not over mm-hmm. for China, but it's not so much China's internal problems. And certainly, that's a grave threat to China. If if especially if uh, countries around the world are reluctant to uh, resume consuming Chinese goods, right? That could be a problem. Yes, yeah, uh, yes. We could talk about that more uh, in a minute. Uh, before we do that, uh, let's talk a bit about the politics of this within China. So uh, the regime acted relatively quickly after an initial hesitation, uh, Has seems to have produced a... Uh, reasonable recovery at this point. Uh, so would you say the regime has uh, benefited politically from its response to this crisis? Uh, President Xi, for example, is he is he uh, getting credit for how things have gone? Um, yeah, I would say he is now. Um, uh, so again, in, initially there was a great deal of criticism uh, from within China of the fact that the government had tried to quash uh, word from this. And mostly this centered on the figure of Dr. Uh, Li Wenliang, who you may have heard about. He was the ophthalmologist, the 34 years old, quite young, who was one of the people who was talking about seeing this in his patients, people with uh, pneumonia, severe pneumonia that seemed to be like SARS. He was called in for questioning and reprimanded, um, but he continued to talk about it. And then he later died of, of COVID-19 in February. And so uh, his death was unannounced. And, and by that point, he had already become something of a national kind of icon because his screenshots with his own name on them had been shared with, all over the country. So people around the country were increasingly angry that uh, these individuals who were basically trying to get the word out had been, uh, had been silenced. Uh, and then the fact that he died just added fuel to this. And so it, there was a period of time in February uh, when, you know, a lot of people were saying this is very bad for Xi Jinping. Uh, a lot of Chinese people, educated professionals, urbanites, middle class people are really finally fed up with the lack of freedom of speech. Um, I think that was very short lived. I, I think now we're in a position where Chinese people are comparing their government's response, including Xi Jinping's response, to that of 
uh, you know, the great beacon of freedom and democracy, the United States. And they and the, the Chinese government has been able to really sort of point to the failings of the American response as as evidence of the uh, inferiority of democracy. And so now I'd say that um, uh, Xi Jinping's position looks pr- much, much better. Um, and I think the government is currently secure uh, and, and its response to coronavirus is probably, I, I'd say on balance, people are very supportive of it. So. I've read some reports that the regime has taken advantage of the crisis to sort of up its political repression, uh, or is that not related? Or um, Well, it's certainly upping its, um, there, there were, again, there was this period of time where people were being quite vocal, on, at least online, uh, but even in conversations about uh, their anger at lack of freedom of speech, about the need for transparency. You had some individuals, um, you know, doing these uh, video reporting from uh, from Wuhan about what was going on there. A number of those people have disappeared. Uh, very, you know, very people you'd consider quite powerful, uh, but but outspoken uh, within the Communist Party have also been detained and disappeared. So yeah, the government is definitely cracking down on uh, individuals advocating for more transparency. I don't know if this is really anything new, if it, or if this is an increase of repression. To me, it seems to be just a continuation uh, of what the, go- the government of Xi Jinping has been doing all along. So I, I, I don't know if there's actually been a qualitative increase. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of responding according to its normal pattern that critics yes. about this as critics about any aspect of the regime are simply dealt with harshly. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and what... What about the, there's been this long-term effort to repress uh, religious minorities, especially the Uyghurs. Uh, Anything we know about uh, what's happening with that? Uh, And by the way, what what about that community? Was it affected by the virus? And do we know anything about that? We don't really know anything. Uh, the lockdown on information getting out is very severe. Um, uh, I get, you know, my sense is that Xinjiang is far enough away, and uh, that it hasn't been greatly affected. That's where the um, that's where the Uyghurs live. The Xin- yeah, Xinjiang is it's the westernmost right. province. It's um, and the Uyghurs are. Uh, a, over a Muslim ethnic minority. And the, the crackdown also involves Kazakhs and Tajiks and, and other um, Muslim groups. But yeah, over a million of these people have been detained in recent years and, and put into these so-called like, you know training camps, which are really just like re-education camps. Uh, and the government is really trying to stamp out sort of Uyghur cultural identity uh, in order to quash, yeah, any kind of, not that there was much of a separatist movement, but basically just to quash Uyghur identity and um, uh, any kind of collective action based on, on that Uyghur identity. But, but I, I don't know, and I haven't seen very much about how COVID is affecting uh, the conditions of Uyghurs, especially those in these camps. And this is something I've been really curious about, but there's very little information that gets out about them anyway. Right. So, so let's turn to the international side of this, uh, move away from Chinese domestic politics. Uh, so how, how is this uh, crisis affecting Chinese ex- external relations? Uh, China's had this 
sort of ambitious uh, international uh, presence. It's wanted to expand its power around the world. It's had this Belt and Road Initiative. I remember in our last conversation, you discussed that to a considerable extent. Uh, how is that all being affected by by this, do you think? Yeah, so so this is interesting. So as far as like foreign relations in general, um, Xi Jinping is a much more ambitious leader than previous Chinese leaders. So uh, I may have mentioned this in the previous podcast I did with you, but Deng Xiaoping long advocated that China needed to bide and hide, sort of bide its time, hide its power. That that has all come to an end under Xi Jinping, and he's definitely projecting China's power on a global stage. Um, Belt and Road is one one piece of that. Um, so, so and I really think that. Remind us again about the Belt and Road. What does that involve? Oh, well. It's ambitious. Initially, I guess the the plan was to it was going to be this eight trillion dollar spending plan, a spending program uh, project, but it it hasn't come anywhere close to that. Um, in other respects, this is basically just a, a way to um, uh, find new outlets for Chinese state owned enterprise state owned enterprises like Chinese state owned construction firms and and also. Uh, you know, banking and build roads and infrastructure. Um, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, a lot of it is looking like a big boondoggle. And, and, and um, China, most of the funding is actually coming from Chinese banks. So Chinese banks are lending money to foreign countries who then hire Chinese firms to build deep water ports and roads and railroads and things like that, airports. Uh, but one of the challenges for China is that, especially with COVID-19 uh, and, and the budget crunch that's going to happen because, or that is already happening with that, a lot of these countries are not going to be able to pay back those loans. So uh, Chinese banks already, which are state-owned, already have a lot of bad loans on their books. And I think um, the Belt and Road Initiative is just going to make that worse. This isn't always a bad thing for China, because one thing China does is that you've seen in a few places like Sri Lanka and uh, I forget where else, but um, uh, where if countries uh, default uh, on their their loans for various Belt and Road projects, then if as part of the, the settlement or built into the, the contracts they've signed, China then takes over that particular port or airport or road or toll booth. So, so China's actually, in a sense, gaining little bits of territory in strategic locations. So some have seen this as a kind of uh, imperialism on the cheap, if you will. Well, that's um, amazing. So, so it's, it's really establishing Chinese territory in these countries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they've gained like 99 year leases or something like that of some, some ports in like yeah. Pakistan or not Pakistan, uh, say Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. Again, I should, should know the specific locations. Um, but the thing is, um, you know, the Belt and Road, it was this grand plan. It still is a grand plan. But I think with COVID-19, the Chinese government is going to have to spend more of its money at home domestically for, you know, to, to deal with the economic fallout that you mentioned earlier, that Chinese, Chinese citizens, although they may uh, appreciate or support the kind of nationalistic, uh, in, you know, uh, impulses of the Belt and Road and, and want China to, you know, sort of flex its muscles um, internationally, you know, they want the government to pay attention to their own concerns. And so I think the government's going to have to start spending more, more money at home. And um, uh, 
and it won't have as much to just spend or uh, you know issue loans for uh, global initiatives. So um, so yeah, so Belt and Road, it's it's not it hasn't panned out quite as as gloriously as it was you know sort of expected to or the way it was talked up by Xi Jinping in the beginning. Um, this and, is even worse. It's not going to be able to. Right. It's yeah. So I think they're going to definitely have to scale back. Um, and, and China is receiving pushback for a lot of these things. So there have been protests in some of these other countries uh, because of, you know, takeovers of Belt and Road projects by the Chinese government or by Chinese firms, I should say, uh, which are basically state owned. Um, so, so this just gets to another issue, which is that Xi Jinping's aggressive global ambitions are really producing something of a backlash internationally. And I, I think, you know, in some ways, this could have been a great opportunity for China to sort of develop and grow its soft power resources, um, especially, you know, as the United States under Trump has withdrawn from global leadership and really mishandled uh, the response to coronavirus and, sh- you know, shows very little interest in kind of leading a global uh uh, approach to the illness. So um, I think that, again, the Xi Jinping might have taken a less aggressive approach. Uh, and so, you know, there, there is some speculation that people, so certain people in China are critical of his overly ambitious um, uh, rhetoric and behavior. And, and so I'm, certainly you know, China as a source of the production of a lot of medical equipment, even capacity for vaccine research and production. It certainly could have used this as an opportunity to say it's going to take the lead internationally to provide the materiel that's needed uh, to fight the virus worldwide. Yes. And I should point out that China has shared uh, some of its resources. So, you know, for all the talk of China being slow to respond and and, uh, trying to quash the information, I do want to stress that, again, I think a lot of that was driven at the, the city level. I think a lot of that was coming from the city level. And I also think that, you know, in comparison, China reacted pretty quickly. Uh, to coronavirus. It was a matter of weeks, you know, January 20th, January 23rd, by the time it acted. When you, Again, when you compare that to uh, the Trump administration response, you know, the, the months and months of dithering and still no real sort of central strategy. There's no comparison. But China has, uh, early on, it shared the, the genetic code once it sequenced the genome. It shared that with um, with the World Health Organization, with researchers in other countries so that they could develop tests for the coronavirus. Um, they have also sent P, you know, PPE uh, or provided PPE, sold PPE to the United States, to the Boston area. That's right. The Patriots plane. We all know about the Patriots plane bringing the masks from China uh, to Massachusetts and Rhode Island, yeah. right? Exactly. Um, so, you know, the, the, the response has been a little, uh, schizophrenic, I guess, in some ways. Um, but it hasn't been an entirely bad actor. And I think people need to be careful about painting it as such. On the other hand, uh, China's reacted somewhat aggressively to, to the criticism that's come at the, at the country. Uh, for, from various quarters around the world, right? It's uh, that 
some of his ambassadors have been ag- aggressive in other countries and in, in pushing back on claims that China should be blamed for the crisis. Absolutely. Um, and again, this, this has a lot to do with Xi Jinping's own administration, his own regime that, that under Xi or Xi himself has really promoted uh, this idea of national rejuvenation uh, and has really sort of talked the talk of, of all the humiliation that China supposedly, or and in many ways did endure uh, from the 19th century up through the 20th century or into the 20th century anyway. And so uh, under Xi Jinping, there's been a real increase in sort of nationalistic rhetoric, uh, a, a, a sort of authoritarian or even totalitarian populism. And Chinese diplomats abroad have spoken in very inflammatory ways, uh, very aggressive ways about, um, you know, uh, other countries' failings and the like. So for every, you know, every time that Trump or Secretary Pompeo talks about, you know, the coronavirus being um, a, a creation of the Chinese government or the Chinese laboratory, you get similar rhetoric in China that really this was a, a, a creation of the U.S. military or U.S. Uh, spy agencies that then planted it in China. So, so there's a there's a kind of almost Trumpian sort of response happening in China as well um, to this. Even before this crisis, there seemed to be real strains in the Chinese American relations. Uh, the Trump administration has has talked about the dangers of expanded Chinese power. Uh, has this just exacerbated those tensions? Uh, are we likely to foresee uh, real conflict between the United States and China uh, in the coming couple of years? Hmm. That that's a great question. <laughs> I don't really know because, in some ways, this is merely revealing what's already kind of going on, uh, and and the connections to China with China, to the extent that they're going to be problems, I think they're largely kind of structural, economic. Um, I don't know if Trump or Pompeo's rhetoric is going to worsen United States relations with China. I do think some of China's actions, for instance, in the South China Sea, where it's been, you know, very aggressive and building coral reef islands and trying to stake claims to much of that maritime territory down there. I think um, that those actions may bring it, you know, increasingly into conflict with not just the U.S., but with other countries, Vietnam, Malaysia, and so on. Um, But, you know, as far as how maybe coronavirus and China's response to it will affect the China-U.S. relations, I think that's probably more likely you know, the, the economic decoupling uh, and the sort of demise of the likely demise of globalization or the shrinking of globalization uh, and global travel, for instance, that, that those things are probably going to have a bigger relationship on the China-U.S. relationship. I mean, I certainly hope there's no real conflict. Um, I will say that, you know, the Trump administration and the Xi administration's rhetoric doesn't help things. Right. And certainly... In this country, there's probably going to be a lot of nervousness about dependence upon Chinese production. We've already seen a lot of discussion in the press about uh, Americans realizing the extent to which they depend upon China for all these products. And can we really afford that? 
there's almost a kind of autarky uh, oh, yeah. rhetoric yeah. everywhere. And, and China certainly is going to be uh, affected by that. But the United States is also not going to benefit if it uh, loses access to uh, production capacity that perhaps was helpful to the American economy, correct? Yeah, although mostly what the United States exported to China was, well, semiconductors and soybeans, right. you know, so so actually agriculture uh, is especially going to be hard hit. Um, you know, for American manufacturers, uh, it's true that a lot of components are manufactured in China that then are right. shipped to the United States and then put into finished manufactured goods that are sold domestically. So, so that is definitely a problem. Um, but in terms of what China, or what the U.S. sold to China, you know, I think the agricultural sector, which you know, by and large, has lar- you know, farmers have in the Midwest have supported Trump, uh, even in the face of the um, tariffs and the trade war. Um, but uh, you know, we'll see. But certainly, this is, I believe, going to accelerate decoupling. And again, it's not just with China, but sort of global supply. Right. I, I would agree with you there. It seems to me that. The, the mood is going to be to try to produce as much as we can within the borders of the United States, uh, uh, at least for a while. I mean, I, it's yeah. this this whole situation has been a great shock to uh, the American economy, and I think Americans' perception of of uh, of the global world, right? Uh, because definitely the coronavirus itself is a is a an outgrowth of globalization, right? The, it's spread yes. around the world yeah. because there's so much travel. I was just thinking this morning, uh, suppose a, a virus like this had emerged in 1968, for example, uh, in China. Uh, it, there's there's no way it would have ever reached the United States, right? There was just so right. little right. contact between China and the rest of the world, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, but mm-hmm. in, And of course, in the United States, you know, a lot of the infections on the East Coast came via Italy. So you have again, the globalization in that yeah. regard. So, uh, you know, there certainly wasn't nearly the, the level of airplane travel, global airplane right. travel that you saw, or any airplane travel. And I was even thinking that, you know, Italy becoming a hotspot so early, uh, it's had some close relationships in this Belt and Road project, right? There, isn't there a city in Italy that had special relationships with the Chinese? Yeah, I I forget. I think they might be building, oh, building I forget what it is, maybe high speed rail yeah. or something like that, or maybe a port. Right. Yeah. So Italy is, is part of this Belt and Road. Right. So okay. yeah. it may have gotten, become a hotspot because of a lot of contact uh, with, with yeah. Chinese people traveling into Italy, you know, at the very outset of the, of the crisis. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if I could summarize then, I mean, so what you're saying is that, in the short term, at least, the the Chinese regime has not been harmed by this, maybe even helped in terms of its domestic position. Uh, the people are rather supportive of, of what's going on, but the, the real implications long term are going to be these international ones. Yes. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I should back up. I'm not sure that the Chinese government is necessarily helped, but it certainly doesn't look so bad in comparison. Uh, and uh, all Chinese people have to do is look at the numbers of infections right. globally. Um, you know, going forward, uh, as far as the, the effect on the Chinese government, uh, one of the problems for Xi Jinping is that 
overall growth was declining, was declining. Growth rates were declining for the last number of years. So the the era of nine percent per year growth is clearly over. And uh, in fact, the first quarter of 2020, China's economy shrank. And that was the first time since, I believe, 1976, the, yeah. the height of the, the Cultural Revolution. So, so this is you know, going to be a problem that is going to affect people domestically in China. And, and that can certainly uh, contribute to unhappiness, discontent, lack of trust, and the like. Um, uh, but yeah, again, as far as the, the COVID response, uh, the rest of the world most countries in the world uh, that people in China are at least aware of or that are following on this score have not done a great job of containing the virus. Well, thanks very much, Susan. This has been very uh, helpful for understanding what's going on. Anything else about uh, the situation that our listeners should uh, know about that we haven't covered? Um. Well, you had uh, mentioned in your uh, initial email to me that you're interested in the issue of regime change, or sorry, regime type, I should say, uh, and the response. And this is something this is something that I've really been thinking about because uh, the question as to whether China's authoritarianism may actually have been an advantage in its ability to respond to the illness. Uh, I I think the jury is still out on this. Certainly, the China's authoritarian uh, powers, uh, authoritarian regime gave it certain advantages, like it was able to quickly lock down a huge area. The government is not constrained by the need to sort of respect citizens' civil liberties, the way governments in liberal democracies are. Um, the government was able to very quickly marshal resources to build hospitals, uh, to, you know, also to even just to get food and, and needed supplies into Wuhan to, for people who were unable to go to work and, and earn a living. So, so the government was able to, you know, clamp down very quickly on mobility, provide resources. And, and these are, to some extent, a feature or a function of its authoritarian nature. And, that's, um, and it's, it's a characteristic of authoritarians uh, everywhere and always to claim that they're more efficient at right. doing things and getting things right. done, right? Make yes. the trains run um, on time. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, I should say, too, though, that some of the clamping down and some of the coercion and some of the lockdown, a lot a lot of that was bottom-up, that, that we can't uh, neglect the fact that Chinese citizens, because of their earlier experience with SARS, but also to some extent because of sort of Maoist socialist legacies, you have bottom-up participation in a lot of these. So you had uh, what are called street committees, neighborhood committees that sort of oversee uh, security issues, affairs within a, a like an urban housing development or something like that. They set up check, uh, checkpoints and were scanning people for temperature, for fevers, checking ID cards. Uh, people entering into uh, their housing developments had to scan QR codes. So, so there was a lot of bottom-up effort to contain the virus. It wasn't all a top-down and approach. There aren't very many Chinese citizens who are likely to join a group going around screaming, give me liberty or give me death. Right. No. So that's yeah. a real difference. Right? Yeah. But I should also say that the case of Taiwan and the case of New Zealand, you know, and also South Korea are really good examples of how you can have effective 
um, uh, pandemic control or, or, you know, epidemic control within liberal democracy. So, so I think the jury is still out on, um, you know, re- how regime type affects response. And I should note too that China's paranoia, it's authoritarian paranoia about the spread of bad information and the, the fear that lower level officials have vis-a-vis their higher ups getting word of, of, you know, instability in their localities that was one reason why the the virus was able to you know keep going in early january and why the government was initially very slow to respond right and one wonders about the as things go forward if the chinese economy doesn't recover uh the the regime the regime may have a difficult time coming up with policies that are going to maintain its support and uh Absolutely. And those, yeah, those of us of... who favor democracy might argue that uh, a regime that can uh, learn from its own citizens uh, what, what their problems are and not have to figure them out from a central location might in the long term benefit better. That Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Although I think your points about the ability to act quickly uh, you know, it's a real kind of, though I, I'm thinking about other democracies around the world, uh, G- Germany, for example, which has, you know, a liberal democratic regime, uh, seems to have organized quite well a response uh, to this. Even the French uh, seem to have organized a response and are, are keeping uh, uh, the expansion of infections and, and deaths down. Uh, so yeah and and this is i mean this is where individual leadership matters like that again i think the the aggressive nationalistic expansionist uh sort of approach of xi jinping has created some problems for him but also you have i mean the federal government in the united states has tremendous powers at its disposal and the president has tremendous powers at his disposal and what's been so frustrating for me watching the government's response is that despite his tough talk, Trump has been remarkably timid about using something like the Defense Production Act or, or you know, uh, the, the, the ability to uh, marshal resources and, and, you know, coordinate uh, the actions of the federal bureaucracy. He's, he's you know, it, it's been so frustrating because he's not really using the powers that he has while he's sometimes claiming powers that he does not have. Um, to order people around. And, and so I think that that's a big part of why the American response has been so, you know, lackluster, to put it mildly. But also the resilience of the American regime in that governors and uh, have, have taken the initiative to replace. And, yes. uh, and, and I'm uh, very hopeful about there's this new consortium of Northeastern states that are getting together to kind of step in and do the kinds of things that the national government ought to have done in terms of obtaining medical supplies and things, which could be very important, you know, over the next months as we try to organize some way to resume, you know, normal living uh, in the presence of, yes. of this yeah. dangerous disease. Uh, yeah. And certainly, uh, I don't think we can expect the national government to, to do that. It hasn't so far. But you know, states organizing together uh, might be able to, you know, step in and, and do that, uh, which in itself is, well, now we're talking about American politics, but I think it's a, yes. a very <laughs> curious and interesting development in, in American politics that you see this, these regional efforts, uh, 
spearheaded by governors, uh, but acting yes. in concert, uh, at least for their own regions and saying, you know, if the national government isn't going to do it, then we're going to have to do it ourselves. And, and we can do it more effectively if we cooperate rather than compete with one another, which seems to have been the Trump administration's uh, approach. Right. Yes. So it, we are truly living in bizarre times. Yes, it is. <laughs> bizarre and interesting times. Okay. All right. Well, Susan, thanks so much. Uh, Professor McCarthy, I should say, thank you so much for for being with us and uh, talking some more about China. Uh, and perhaps next fall, uh, we'll come back and revisit some of these issues, maybe bring in some of our other colleagues to talk about the international response uh, overall. So uh, anyway. Well, th thank you very much for having me. This is a uh, very interesting. Okay. So. Well, thanks again for, for helping us out. And Thanks again to Reagan Wind, our uh, Dauntless producer who has brought us together uh, uh, remotely uh, on Zencaster. Uh, she's done a great job. And congratulations to Reagan, who is looking forward to a virtual graduation in a couple of weeks <laughs> and maybe a graduation uh, uh, in, in person uh, next fall sometime. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, thanks, Reagan, and, and best wishes to you. And thanks again to the Marketing and Communications Office of Providence College, uh, Joe Carr and Chris Judge for their support. And thanks also to our listeners. Uh, we appreciate your following this podcast. Please tell uh, four friends about it. And if you haven't yet subscribed, do so wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.